Mitigating the carbon pollution problem is one of the most important issues facing the oil and gas industry today. But what does sustainable oil and gas really look like? There's certainly technical issues around how oil and gas are extracted, transported and refined, as well as carbon capture, sustainable aviation fuels, fuels and next generation plastics. There's also the question of how capital intersects with the industry and its future. I'm Doug Heinzman. I'm the Chief Catalyst at the Blockchain Research Institute. Welcome to W3B Talks, an ongoing exploration of the impact of Web3 and blockchain technologies on business, government, and society. And in this episode, we're going to look at sustainable oil and gas. And who better to help us navigate this topic than C. Chen. C. is the co-author of Sustainable Oil and Gas Using Blockchain. C. is also the president of Open Source Strategies, an open source developer, and formerly an investment fund manager. He also leads the development of open source blockchain carbon accounting software in the Hyperledger ecosystem, specifically with the climate accounting and certifications and energy working groups. Welcome to the podcast, C. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my great pleasure. This this is a topic that I've, I'm personally very interested in. I've done a lot of research in the oil and gas industry and I actually sit on the Board of Advisors for Blockchain for Energy and work a lot with uh, major oil companies. So when I when I saw your book and had a chance to, to talk with you, I knew we had to have you on to kind of explore this topic in, um, in a little more detail. And so uh, it's, it's, there, there seems to be, a, you know, at least in my mind, uh, for the longest time, until I started doing a lot of research, there, there was a bit of a contradictory um, you know, kind of a cognitive dissonance that I was always struggling with. You know, the idea of sustainability and oil and gas in the same sentence always, you know, kind of struck me as a bit of a, a non-starter that the real answer was to basically get out of oil and gas as quickly as possible and move into sustainables. And we should put all of our effort into making sustainable energy sources, you know, much more, um, you know, realistic and much more economical and 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 actually get to uh, implementing them. But I've, I've come to appreciate that that's a somewhat naive point of view. At least there's a lot more nuance involved. So can you help us understand what, what sustainable oil and gas really means? Sure. In the context of our book, which talked a lot about the initiatives in the oil and gas industry for addressing the climate problem, like the ones you mentioned, uh, carbon capture, sustainable bioaviation fuels and plastics and things like that. There's a lot of technologies that the oil and gas industry can do to reduce or even um, completely remove the climate impact of their products and output. So a sustainable oil and gas industry for us, on one hand, is an environmentally sustainable industry, one that's not causing the climate change and the environmental harm that uh, is happening right now. And on the other hand, it's more sustainable from a business and financial point of view so that um, it delivers more consistent returns to investors and is an ongoing and successful business like many other industries are today. Yeah, well, once again, this kind of gets to a bit of my cognitive dissonance because, you know, there's, there's, there's a... Uh... You, you think of the analog of, of the tobacco industry and, you know, doing things to make the industry make sense for investors seems to be, 
you know, a contraindication that you, you seem to be going in the wrong direction, that this shouldn't be something that we make affordable and profitable. Because if we do, then we just make the air of oil and gas last longer than it probably should. And ultimately, that's going to be a, a really, really big problem. So how do I, how do I kind of, uh, you know, tie that off? Okay. Yeah. You know, people do make that analogy, but for me, the disconnect is obviously I don't smoke. And I, I think of that as a choice that people have made, uh, probably a bad one in my opinion, but it's uh, not something that everybody has to do, but you really, we live in a world that is completely, uh, made by oil and gas, right? That you can't go through a day without touching something that's wrapped in plastic, made from plastic, drive on a road that's paved uh, with tar and with a car that's powered by gasoline or um, you know electricity powered by natural gas. So oil and gas is much more pervasive and it's basically what the whole world is built with. And on the other hand, there are technologies, at least we believe now that will successfully um, negate the climate impact of using oil and gas to, uh, from things like carbon capture to reducing the production emissions of all these products. So, yes, we absolutely need to increase renewable energy and other forms of energy investments. Um, but at the same time, there is a path for an oil and gas industry that is, we believe, environmentally sustainable and sustainable as businesses. Um, and it's important that we help the oil and gas industry get there because the worst thing that could happen actually is for this huge industry to basically split off on its own. Okay. And this is a scenario that could happen where the economy literally divides into two economies, the so-called green economy and the so-called brown economy, and they don't. Uh, work together anymore or even talk to each other. And the whole point of a successful energy transition is to not let that happen. That's why there is this energy transition, right? We're going from the current energy system to one that is sustainable. And that includes um, everybody, including the oil and gas industry. Okay. So I, I, I'm hearing kind of two things from you. One is that there's what you might think of as a harsh reality. And that is that we have an energy intensive economy that people will freeze uh, or, you know, not have food if we don't, you know, use energy. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us have been very distressed as we look at some of the coal production numbers and how, because of the war in Europe, that, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of countries and a lot of uh, utilities are, are turning, you know, back to coal. Uh, because we just need the energy and the consequences of not having the energy are, are very, very severe. So there's kind of that, that harsh reality, and this is the world we live in part of the argument. And the second part of the argument really is that, that we need to keep that industry engaged in being part of the solution instead of, you know, kind of marginalizing them so that they're living in a different world and that that their motivations become purely profit-oriented and uh, that they start fighting against the, the energy transition. So have I summarized that 
you know, reasonably enough? Yes. Those are the key, two key points. So let's, let's go and look at the, the, the first part of that equation. We've got this, this, the harsh reality of where we are. And you mentioned a bunch of, a bunch of different things, including plastics and asphalt and uh, obviously heating and other things. Well, in fact, for that matter, methane is the largest source of, of hydrogen, which a lot of people think are part of the renewable economy. So it's this green hydrogen and then there's, there's methane-derived uh, hydrogen as well. So of those various different you know, major use cases, some of them are more difficult to transition out of, right? So as well as some of them don't necessarily have the same environmental impact. You mentioned asphalt, which of course has a lot of oil content, but isn't the carbon still sequestered in asphalt or are we putting it in atmosphere? Is that the same as burning it as a gallon of gasoline? You know, I don't think so, but I'm not really an expert on all these petroleum science. That's my co-authors. Okay, um, so let's go to some of the other ones. So, so we, you talk about plastics in the book, mm-hmm. and the, there are alternatives to plastics, so, yes. uh, or there's alternative sources of, of the materials that, that are you know, manufactured plastics. Where are we on the curve of being able to use alternative means of creating plastics and you know, versus petroleum-based means of creating plastics? Where, where does the, the, the price curve intersect? When do we get to that you know, replacements or are petroleum plastics just a part of our future for as long as we can see out? Unfortunately, yeah, fossil fuel plastics is so dominant right now. And I think the alternatives to plastics, the, the different feedstocks are really kind of in the experimental and research stages. And so I think it will take quite a bit of effort to switch that around. So, okay, so that's one area, but there, there is research going on into alternative plastics. We already have some on the market. It's just a matter of there's, there's costs involved. They're not competitive yet. Yeah, and the scaling up. And the, there's the whole issue of how do you get enough of the feedstock and how do you scale it up? So, and this, one of the things that people talk about is uh, greenwashing out there, right? But I, I think of it really just as a lot of different claims about climate and sustainability and what is uh, really true. And uh, sometimes what's really true is hard to call, like, for example, with plastics. Okay, so you go to uh, your local Whole Foods and you think, okay, this is a, a store that's dedicated to sustainability. And lo and behold, you know, they sell uh, bottled water in um, aluminum and steel and paper. And instead of plastic um, utensils, they have products made from, say, potato starch. And this is all better. And then these are um, biodegradable, compostable containers that we can use. And so this is great. This is, this is the future. It's the alternative plastics. So the reality is that all those aluminum bottles and um, paper, steel, those take a lot more energy to produce. So, so, but it seems to me that I, I, we may be conflating two different issues here. So, there's the the plastics problem is largely a, a problem of pollution, right? So, plastic pollution in the market in, in in the environment, and that's not necessarily a carbon issue. That's not an atmospheric pollution. That's a physical pollution in in waterways. Yes. So, it's a slightly separate question than the carbon question. And yes. I, I think that it's fair that that aluminum and steel are more expensive to create in their first iteration. But my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is the reason 
that we're transitioning to some of those containers is that their recyclability is a much more compelling set of economics and it's it's much easier to do and it's much more of a realistic thing to do. So as a means of keeping plastics out of the ocean, out of landfills. Yeah, and we definitely need to keep uh, the plastics out of landfills and oceans. And actually, a lot of places are just outright banning all sorts of plastics. And for good reason, because it's just there's no need to produce, you know, um, a cheap shopping bag or a cheap fork for every takeout container or every takeout order at a restaurant. Um, But the um, environmental impact of plastics is also very high in terms of carbon emissions already. And so for something else like steel or aluminum that has even higher emissions, um, a wholesale switch to those plus the mining of those life cycle emissions costs is quite high. And um, the now the recyclability is an interesting argument because those are recycled a lot more. But that's also partly because a lot of what you use plastics for is exactly the cheapest and lowest use things that people don't necessarily recycle, you know? So if, for example, all your water bottles started to be made from aluminum, will people recycle it in the same quantities as they do other types of aluminum products? And I don't know, I I don't think we really know the answer. So it's just an example of like for any kind of climate claim, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of assumptions built into these models. And um, uh, so I'm not here to confuse the issue. We absolutely need to reduce um, unnecessary plastic and recycle the rest and turn And the whole chapter we did is a circular economy on it. Um, but unfortunately, plastics on their own is not so easy to get rid of. In fact, we see that growing in use around the world. But the underlying theme that you keep on kind of touching on for me, it kind of comes back to what economists call externalities, right? You, you talk about what's the, the total impact of, of the, the mining and refinement and production and distribution of a particular, in this case, uh, packaging material. And that if we have to start kind of looking at the bigger system questions uh, in order to really evaluate the, the benefits or the uh, the impact of various different kinds of alternatives and develop policies and strategies. So this is one of the most important, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of this whole discussion, at least for me, is where where strategic goals like building a more sustainable planet run into capital and financing, right? And the ability to start building viable marketplaces that allow us to incorporate much more of the bigger picture, much more of these externalities, right? We see some jurisdictions putting carbon taxes on, for example, that are a means of, of incorporating the cost of carbon pollution into the price of the thing creating that pollution. And I think that that is a very central tenant of the circular economy and of regenerative financing. So, and I think maybe the the most obvious example of that would be the the carbon credit marketplace that a lot of us have kind of heard about, and uh, the idea that if we can start pricing these externalities in, so that the goods and the companies that produce those goods that are creating a lot of the pollution that 
some of the, the money going into those things is diverted to mitigation or sequestration or to alternatives to you know subsidize their development so that that we're not going to be incurring these the, you know the, the damage of these externalities you know forever so can you can you help help us understand kind of where we are with this idea that we can have marketplaces and and tokens credits that represent the pollution that these things cause and and create incentives and disincentives in the marketplace Sure. Yeah. I mean, carbon markets are getting big and, and they're getting bigger as more and more countries are implementing the Paris Agreement um, and instituting some kind of a trading scheme. So we've had them in Europe. Um, we now have several in the United States, the regional greenhouse gas initiative kind of in the Northeast. Uh, California has different schemes like uh, ranging from low carbon fuel standards for transportation to, um, you know, uh, California Air Resource Board has a lot of regulations. Um, there's also uh, a federal tax incentive for carbon capture here in the United States um, that was, I think, part of the Inflation Reduction Act. So, and also, China just implemented a carbon market for its power generation sector a couple of years ago. So all these things are getting big and something like over a billion people now live under uh, some kind of a carbon trading regime somewhere in the world. So the, there's definitely that going on. And I think it will be important, actually. One of the frustrations in the oil and gas industry is actually uh, the lack of clarity around all these carbon schemes. And many of them, I think, would feel more um, clear about how they're supposed to operate instead of just always having this thing hovering somewhere in the background. It's going to drop, but we don't know when and we don't know how much. Um, and I think this is an interesting area because um, on one hand, it is an externality, right? It's an additional cost to the oil and gas industry, right, to now start having to think about this. But on the other hand, um, they definitely have ways to mitigate it and to earn carbon credits. They just need to make the investment into all these things. And so for the companies that make the investment, they could then have a competitive advantage if they could um, be under a, um, sort of a fair carbon credit system, one that's not just uh, lowest common denominator, cheap carbon offsets that you could buy. So it actually is to their advantage to um, enforce a, um, a more sort of strict carbon regulatory system. And I think this is what we're seeing is that for the companies in the industry that are making the investments to be more sustainable, they benefit from that is their competitive advantage and they actually want um, or would benefit from stricter regulations and carbon markets so that they have that edge over other companies. So um, in some ways, the industry's goals and the um, environmental goals are they're very much aligned here in that if they're going to make the investment to reduce methane, to do carbon capture, they need to get paid back for it. And the way that works is through higher carbon prices, not lower. So it, well, there's a whole bunch of 
things that, that kind of come out of what you just said that I, I would like to unpack. But perhaps the very, the very first one would be that, you know, the, the overarching ethos here and, and attitude. So, you know, you're painting a vision where oil and gas companies are motivated to be constructive and be part of the solution. And you've set up this argument that says if they can appreciate the regulatory landscape and understand the dynamics of the carbon marketplaces, and if they execute, uh, you know, a, a good strategy, that they can differentiate themselves competitively in the marketplace. That almost sounds like a bit of a stick way of approaching the, the problem uh, from you know society and government standpoint. But what what do you what do you sense in working with oil and gas companies and talking to them? What's your sense of of their attitude? Are they are they in denial about climate change, or are they you know absolutely this is an existential risk and we need to be a big part of the solution? What's what's the overarching attitude in, in the industry? I think it's somewhere in between that those two points that you have and depending on the company it actually varies okay so um i think the wholesale denial i think that uh is rare at least in public now but how quickly they're moving towards a solution um that really varies and what i think we need to see is more of a market reward for the companies that are making that transition, that are more proactive. And that's actually a key thing that's missing in the market right now, because there's still too much of the, let's just throw them all out, let's divest fossil fuels, and let's um, just get rid of all of these. And a better dynamic would be one where the more proactive oil and gas companies have higher valuations, and that drags the whole industry along further in that direction. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, valuation has traditionally been associated with revenue and profitability. And, and you're suggesting that we need to either figure out how people value some of the non-financial attributes. And I think that there is some of that going on with a lot of the ESG-oriented investing community that, that, that people are starting to ascribe other value besides profit and revenue. But 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 ultimately, you know, that's still obviously a very important driver. So then then we get to the second part of the question I wanted to unpack, which was was about creating the the market dynamic, the incentive structure that aligns the objectives of all of us that, that all of us have in sustainability with the strategies that these oil and gas companies are are executing. Now we've we've had carbon trading marketplaces for quite a while. And, you know, you mentioned the term greenwashing a little while ago, and there's lots of companies that wrap themselves, you know, in the flag of sustainability. And there's a fair amount of probably healthy skepticism that a lot of those claims um, have a lot of merit. And frankly, that the carbon trading marketplace, you know, is auditable. Right, has any real fundamental credibility is, you know, is any more than a public relations uh, exercise. So, what's your sense on, you know, where we are with kind of integrity in that marketplace? Yeah, I think this is a 
is a tough question in that there's so there's compliance carbon government run markets and there's um the voluntary carbon markets where people can register a project like we reduced emissions by planting trees or by um changing some process at our company or or something and then we want to sell some carbon offsets to another company so they both they both um have their own issues okay like the government run um criticism like in the EU for many years was over allocated many legacy industries just got tons and tons of credits um without having to do anything so the value per ton of carbon became like uh very very low uh i think we're finally getting past that they're phasing those out um but government accounting schemes for emissions are often pretty simplistic and um could be erroneous um uh, on the other hand the voluntary carbon market i think their problem is basically that they're set up to do what i think is impossible which is prove a counterfactual right if if i weren't born what would have happened to everybody i know kind of a question well, yeah, this, this, <laughs> you know? that, that's that's the group well, there's a group in there that i drives me a little crazy and i kind of think of them as the the extortion group that you know it, it, give me a carbon credit or i will cut down this swath of rainforest right give me a carbon yeah. credit or i will develop these potential oil fields in greenland and um you know if if you give me carbon credits that i i promise i won't develop them right so it it seems to me that there's a class of these things that seems a little unsavory um mm-hmm. which yeah. suggests to me that there's a continuum that there is a range of quality of carbon credit right i mean if i put a carbon scrubber or if i actually sequester atmospheric carbon right or even if i'm you know i could even see the case for electric vehicles uh, for example that you know demonstrably are um you know putting you know taking gas off of the highways because we're displacing internal combustion engines so i can see a lot of those cases but it does it does seem to me that there is a bit of a continuum right that there's yeah a range of quality of these carbon credits how how do we sort all that out well at this point the government run compliance markets are so much bigger than the voluntary markets uh that really that's the one that matters okay we're talking about a trillion dollar plus market that's growing very quickly as more countries institute carbon trading versus um a voluntary market that's about a billion dollars a year which is really like that's less than you know the market for chapstick for example you know um so in the compliance carbon markets i think there just needs to be more sort of um responsible looking at where these markets are and where they need to head to uh because a lot of times people just they go and you know they try to get governments to pass various forms of legislation and then they pat themselves on the back look we finally passed a law that requires all these big bad polluting companies to do something and then when you actually go and read the law and how the reporting is done and who's excluded um you know there's a lot of holes in those okay and then um a lot of the methodologies are quite outdated that's one of the things we found researching for our book 
So what group is going to be consistently there looking at these companies and saying, where do they need to go? And I think the, the group for doing that is actually the investment community. Because, uh, well, I'm talking as a former fund manager, right? But that's what we did all day. We studied things. We thought about where they would go. We made projections. We, we looked at data. And that's our job. That's what we're trained to do. And so the investment community needs to be really much more connected in, in, in the, to those markets and, and thinking about how they would affect the companies that they invest in. And then they could um, sort of push things in the right direction, if you will. Yeah, so I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point. Uh, ultimately, you know, how attractive a value proposition is to a class of investors drives the strategy of that organization. And I see more and more activist investors and institutional investors that have as a matter of core policy that things have to be, you know, uh, this have to be, you know, ESG compliant or have to behave in a certain kind of way that it's constructive to the environment. So I, I do see that as being a very big pressure. And I've seen some big oil companies that have had to make significant alterations in their strategies because investors have come in and said, no, we're not going to go in that direction. We're going to go in this direction. And ultimately, investors own the company. So I've, I've seen that, but it kind of still has me circling around to this the, the viability of these these marketplaces. And which begs the question, um, you know, the, a lot of the work you're doing, the title of your book involves blockchain. So how does Web3 and blockchain make a difference? What what has the introduction of that technology done to the carbon marketplace and how do you see it evolving? Yeah, I think so far it is still in the early stages, but um, we're seeing a lot of different potential applications and some of them are happening. Uh, for example, a lot of these oil and gas and energy production processes are very complicated. So people are using the blockchain to track the provenance of their feedstock, how uh, different products are produced, how the carbon capture is actually happening, and um, how much is stored, you know, and all the different production processes. And what we envision it going from there is attaching certificates of origin, certificates of, of climate um, attributes to products so that oil and gas becomes more of a digital asset as much as um, it is today a physical product that you ship, right? But that people um, are buying oil and gas because of their environmental attributes. And then other applications, for example, is really tracking all the different climate claims so that all the different carbon markets are in sync with each other and a company is not monetizing the carbon reduction multiple times in, in different carbon markets. And I think that will become uh, a very important application for the blockchain as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, we kind of look at this as Web3 as being a, a, a grouping of complementary and force multiplying technologies, including blockchain, artificial intelligence, IoT, and spatial UX, AR, VR stuff. Yeah, I can see the idea that, that IoT helps us do high quality measurements and that if you can ledger those measurements and you, and once data is on the ledger, if the ledger is immutable, 
and distributed, then you've got a high quality data set that you can then use as a, a basis for authoritatively or confidently trading. So that becomes a big part of it. And I also suspect that artificial intelligence may give us uh, a lens to detect fraud or detect exaggeration, right? That we can yes. kind of look at patterns, that the combination of these technologies has some potential to give us confidence that when we're buying and selling a carbon credit, that that that, that, that credit represents an actual measurement somewhere, that as that that unit that it's measuring has moved through supply chains and refinement and distribution and all that kind of stuff that it has been added to or subtracted to depending on what interactions it has with the, the rest of the system and that there is digital scarcity, right? That, that they're we're not doing counterfeiting and, and double counting that, you know, it is what it is. So I'm, I'm, I'm personally hopeful that those marketplaces will get a lot more, credibility because we can deploy these technologies in, in support of them. Do you buy that? Yeah, I think that would be a very important part of it. Just having this whole certificate of origin and basically being able to trace uh, the environmental attributes of products so that we know that what we're buying is real and that you know it's not causing some other offsetting or or make, uh, negative influence on the other side and also that it's not being sold in different markets over and over again you know the country isn't claiming an emissions reduction and then the company is claiming an emissions reduction and then its customers are claiming it again and, and well, it's, it's, yeah that's that's a variation on the double spending problem right the double claiming exactly. problem it's it's basically the, the same fundamental data problem Exactly. Now, there's, a a, there's, there's an interesting derivative or variation on this theme that I've been kind of watching and trying to get my head around, and that's the, the book and claim system, right? Mm -hmm. So there are various different airlines, just use aviation fuel, you mentioned it before, we use that as an example, that for either public relations reasons or because of customer demand or, or investor demand, or because they actually sincerely believe that you know we need to move to this, they want to incorporate more and more sustainable aviation fuel, alternative avi aviation fuel into the mix. But of course, the reality is that they go and land in some airport that doesn't have the facilities or the storage or those alternative fuel sources available. And so all they can do is put regular jet fuel into the plane but through a, a book and claim system, they can claim the credit for using alternative fuel because someone else used alternative fuel but didn't register it or, or paid the basic rate for the traditional fuel. So while in actuality, in the physical world, those planes aren't carrying sustainable aviation fuel, in the virtual digital world, from a systems point of view, they actually are. So, do you see these kinds of book and claim systems? This almost—it's almost like a digital twinning. And once you've done a digital twin of something, you can start to do all kinds of fancy things about trading and moving credits around very, very efficiently. Do you see this really, you know, taking hold and becoming a a big thing, or even a bigger thing than just aviation fuel? 
Yeah, uh, actually, we do. We see that happening. Plastics, people are creating um, sustainable plastic credits, recycled plastic credits. So that's one of them. Uh, people are trying to create um, certificates for um, low emission natural gas. So there's something called responsibly sourced gas that uh, people get certified to that their natural gas has uh, lower methane emissions, you know, and obviously carbon capture and storage, right? That's a big one. It's fundamental part of carbon markets. Um, so I think this will become a standard feature in much of the energy sector, just like renewable energy certificates are uh, today for solar and wind. So do you see a path forward for you know, a strategy that is, is environmentally and financially sustainable as a business model for, for, oil, and, oh yeah, for oil and gas companies? Yes, I do, actually. And perversely, it's one of the things that helps them is the presence of renewable energy being this very low-cost source of energy, but is currently not available everywhere at all times. So already um, in California, actually, the cheapest time to use energy should be about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, right, when all our solar panels are at full power. And then at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock should be much more expensive. So as oil and gas transitions from, you know, the only fuel source where everybody's just, by the way, part of the problem for them is everybody leans on them to produce lower cost energy all over the world, right? So, but as their alternatives, they can start to transition uh, oil and natural gas as kind of a premium fuel with attributes that say renewable energy doesn't have. They can also benefit from these environmental regulations that demand lower emissions. So, okay, they could invest in carbon capture, they could invest in these processes and then charge for it and get paid back for it. So the oil and gas industry will probably be smaller because they won't be the only energy source that we'll rely on. I mean, that has to be true, right? We just invented nuclear fusion last year. <laughs> but during a very long transition period, while it's still used, they could benefit actually from a lot of the environmental attributes that's required of um, energy in general going forward. So the two actually, I think of that as the path going forward to them where, yes, they can produce the fuel for you and they can charge you to capture the carbon emissions for you. Your book seems to, in part, be a, a call to action. Point out that, that oil and gas companies have an important role to play and have an opportunity. They have some incredibly smart people. They have a good awareness of the international global regulatory landscape. They have a lot of working capital. They've yeah. got significant uh, brand recognition and brand power in the marketplace and various other advantages of incumbency. So in many ways, as we move into this, this energy transition era, uh, you would think that they have a lot of considerable advantages to be part of not only solving the very real problems we have, but being a vital, important part of the new energy economy as it emerges. And, and to your point, I think you're just making that this isn't a, today it's one way and tomorrow it's another way. This is this will be a transition that will 
you know, span a very long period of time, and we're actually already into that transition. So, what if if you were talking to the CEO, the management, you know, direct the board of directors of a a big energy company, and you know they were asking you what what's kind of the mo- what are the most important strategic things we should be looking at going forward? What what would your you know your top few pieces of advice be to them? Yeah, I, my advice would be to recognize that the energy transition is real and to get ahead of the game as much as possible. Okay. And once you're the leader, convince your investors that you're going to be successful in this so that you command a higher multiple, multiple of earnings, multiple of assets relative to the rest of the industry. And from there, you're in a good position, right? You can acquire your the other companies. You can do a lot of things to grow. And the industry will probably get smaller, but there is definitely room at the top for somebody to, who runs it well through this energy transition. And it could be a very successful uh, transition, both from a climate perspective and from a business perspective. Okay, finally, you know, we've talked about energy companies, big oil and gas companies. And for a lot of us, they're kind of remote, the arm's length sort of constructs that are a little hard for us to grasp, get our heads around. And yet, I think a lot of us are starting to feel the impact of climate change directly, right? On the on the East Coast, we've just endured a week of some of the worst air quality that we've ever experienced. You've probably seen some of the pictures coming out of New York City. Sure. They're just extraordinary. And it seems that we're going to see more and more of this sort of disruption that's going to cause death and disease and discomfort. So what do you think we can do as as individuals, right? And I suppose it's a broad landscape. It's not just consumption or even our demand response, but also how we decide to make consumer decisions or who we decide to invest in. What is a call to action for you know all of us? Sure. I think, you know, for each of us, there's probably a different role and everybody could do something, right, to help reduce uh, the climate impact and emissions. And for me, it's, it's looking at the investment side of um, energy and, and major industries. For somebody else, it could be uh, just changing the behavior of people and um, being more sustainable. Uh, but really, to if, if it is something you want to do, really try to understand it and then try to understand why it's not happening. You know, like whatever it is that you might think, okay, let's insulate our house better, right? Reduce energy, get paid back. Then really go out there and talk to people and see why they don't do it, you know, and see if there's problems out there that you could solve. And what I'm seeing is a lot of times industries, it's not just a, a group of greedy men sitting somewhere wanting to destroy the planet. Okay. The industries that I've looked at, they have structural problems. They can't solve the problem as quickly as we like. So try to solve some of those problems. And I think that's what we could really do. Try to understand why people can't do the things that, that they should and see if you could help them fix that. Thank you so much for that. I agree that a lot of this has to do with with attitude and, you know, kind of thinking through this landscape without our natural temptation to cast villains and heroes. 
and appreciate that it's actually a very complex landscape and that we're transitioning from one world to another world and it doesn't happen overnight. And we have to put the right incentives and disincentives in place. And we also should hope that the people that are running these companies are, are motivated by the, the right kinds of things and service to the, the public good. So uh, I'm hopeful. I think we have a lot of challenges ahead of ourselves. But but thank you so much for your particular contribution to this sure. this dialogue and enriching um, you know the ideascape because uh, we need to think through these things and and get a framework on on how to how to think through the problem and how to design solutions. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today and helping us better understand sustainability in the oil and gas industry. And thank you all for joining us today for this episode of W3B Talks. You can find out more information about this topic by visiting sustainableoilgas.com. You can also order sustainable oil and gas using blockchain at that website, or you can also get it on Amazon. You can find out more information about blockchain in the oil and gas industry, including a paper that I authored, as well as research on many other topics at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. I'd also invite you to subscribe to our newsletter. I'm your host, Doug Heinzman, and we hope that you'll join us for our next episode of W3B Talks.